on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, this is America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho. Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week in Chalk Talk, 2021 is in the record books. We take a look back at the most impactful stories of last year. And then, listener mailbag, just how do you explain opera to the layperson anyway? Plus, two-minute drill, Gonzalez Granados, Leniv, and Yankovskaya are all taking steps to become even more opera household names than they already are. Hey, look, if you're watching on TDO, you want to subscribe to our podcast. If you're on Stitcher or Spotify, you click follow to subscribe to the podcast, or you can just smash that sweet plus sign if you listen on Apple Podcasts. And guess what? More platforms on which to listen to the show are coming your way in the weeks to follow. Hey, look, email us your hot takes, operaboxscore.gmail.com. Drop us a line. Get that OBS beer coaster. Get that OBS lapel pin just for sharing your voice. Oliver Camacho, great to see you again. Like you can go out, you can go out onto your terrace, and that's a platform. You can listen to it there. You could, you could. Indeed. You can wear platform shoes. You could, <laughs> Matt Cummings. Yes. How about you, Ashley? I plan on building a platform out of pallets and standing on it while I record the next episode. Is it, isn't that like a TikTok a trend? <laughs> if you're all wondering where Weston's beautiful voice is, everybody, and you're listening to the podcast, we decided that in 2022, we want to be more uh, gender and racially equal. So for every two um, cis heterosexual white guys, there has to be at least one woman or one person of color. <laughs> and Weston counts for two people because he's so tall. So... <laughs> He's not on the show today. <laughs> Weston, I was going to say we instituted a six foot height cutoff, but. <laughs> but Weston must be is under this height to ride. Probably secretly rubbing his hands in glee as, as Alabama marched on to the national championship game on December 10th. Um, hey, so guess what? Uh, Georgia football, it's real. It's a thing. If you're a Michigan fan, boy, did you learn that the hard way on New Year's Eve. Yikes. Not worth a repeat. I, I, Our family, we listen to the game on the radio because we don't have ESPN TV. Mm, that's so yeah. sweet. But I bet you've got Georgia on your minds today. <laughs> oh, there it is. Ashley, the Hogs winning in the Outback Bowl. They sure did on New Year's Day. All I have to say is suck it, Penn State. Also suck it to all of the coverage ahead of time. There was an article that came out that said everybody is rooting against the Razorbacks in the Outback Bowl because That's the SEC true. wins too much. First of all, <laughs> yes, they do. That's why everybody's bottlenecking to get into the conference. Second of all, we're decidedly one of the worst teams in the SEC. So if anything, people should be rooting for us to take down some of the bigger guys. But at any rate... For the last time this season with my squeezy, go Hawks. There it is. Let's talk some opera. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. 2021 in the books. We are looking back on the show this week, putting together a highlight reel of some of the biggest, baddest, bestest stories from the past year. I think we're probably going to eschew making any predictions for 2022. Oliver, <laughs> no. you wanted to start... 
with middle class artists. I do want to start with middle class artists, but I want to say that if you haven't, if you just walked away from your podcasts like we did for the past two weeks during the holidays, I encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the two episodes that are in your feed below this episode. I can't believe that we talked to Kiman Mara just as the rest of the world was getting to know him. He became an Operalia finalist. We also had Barbara Hannigan on our show. <laughs> did we have Barbara Hannigan on our show? We sure we love her, Miss Hannigan. Miss Hannigan. And, you know, I think while I was doing that interview with Weston, I was just so, like, awestruck that I didn't even hear what she was saying. <laughs> like, I just, I couldn't believe that she was talking to us. And so I've listened to it again. It's like, oh, my God, she is such an amazing person. Uh, one of our listeners says that she's probably uh, the most brilliant musician alive today. Wow. So. Wow, wow, wow. Um, All great. I, I mean, again, 2021 was a really great year on the OBS. So I did want, we to, on today's episode, we want to just take stock in some of the stories that were important to us in 2021. And um, you have to say that Zach Finkelstein's Middle Class Artist was what we were talking about, like getting out of December of 2020 and getting into the first quarter of 2021. Middle Class Artist was a real force to be reckoned with in our community. He had just published a big story about online audition fees since a lot of opera companies were moving to online audition models. And then uh, a series of articles that had to do with discrimination against women and fat shaming, which led to, we think, (laughs) tip the scales towards Diane Zola resigning from the Metropolitan Opera. It probably didn't hurt. Yeah. (laughs) And then there was that weird article about that guy, the journalist Andreas Laska, who was like soliciting singers and, you know, saying, I'm going to write an article if you would just send me your naked pictures or whatever he was doing. It was a weird article on an even weirder person who was trying to do weird stuff to people in the industry. So let's place yeah. the weird in the right spot. <laughs> that just had bad mojo written all over it. But then there was like the article that really brought middle class artists to like, another level which was the bonkers <laughs> hilarious boris martinovich international vocal competition uh which zach in his article uh revealed was um saying that so many people had applied to it and posted their online videos as if they those people were actually uh contestants but they were just apparently taking all sorts of stuff off the internet and putting them on their site uh, and those people had not even, uh, you know, applied to be in that competition. And they said that Denise Graves was going to be one of the jury members. And, you know, Denise was like, I don't remember saying yes to that. Like, you know, we maybe We're had a conversation. Quickly, hot potato. She <laughs> yeah, was like, not exactly. it, not it. Yeah. But the competition continues. The Boris Martinovich competition will happen again in 2022. And they still are charging a $90 application fee. And yeah, I know da- damaged goods, though. We've got to be damaged goods. <laughs> George, went over- Diane Martinovich is going to come for you. <laughs> Bring it on, I, baby. We, do I we went over to the website. Me? Oh, I, I no, want to hear this, but then I have a question for you. Yeah, I went over to the website of the BorisMartinovich.org uh, competition just to see, like, who was on tap to be a jury member this year. And this year, they brought in the big guns. Uh, Philip Pavazic from the Croatian National Theater, uh, Jungmi Ko from KAF Entertainment Company, uh, Mikhail Sinkovich 
who apparently is a conductor at the Murinsky Theater. So that's that's a big deal. Uh, oh, Im Sang Yoon from La Primavera Opera in Los Angeles. You know, you don't you're not going to make it anywhere unless you have the Primavera's endorsement. So that's what <laughs> but still ninety dollars to get into that competition. <laughs> Uh, speaking of speaking of cutting edge journalism, um, should we infiltrate the competition? Should I apply as like an Eastern European? There's no like age Ashlina limit. So. Hard, oh. Ashlina Hardgrova, like I could just give him a, <laughs> I could throw him a Caronome and see what happens. No, nah, I can't. You could if you that, do. Please name me else. as your manager. Absolutely. <laughs> they might put you on old. the ju- they might put you on the jury, Matt, if you say you're a manager. <laughs> 2021 really was it was the year of the middle class artist what what gives me pause for thought right was that the last post for on that site was in april of 2021 i know and i I wrote maybe just life caught up with zach well zach got a a new job and it's in seattle i don't know if he was already based in seattle but uh at any rate he's i think he was yeah so yeah the last post from middle class artist was in april um i do belong to the facebook group that he started uh, for singers, the singing community, uh, which also has like a mental health sub group. And that group is active. And I do see Zach posting in that group. But uh, yeah, maybe, you know, burnout. And like, I, I, we're not, you know, we love you, Zach. And like, thank you for all the work you did for, for us. Uh, but it would be great if somebody carried the mantle, the new Batman of the opera world, you know, with great, with great uh, power comes great responsibility that's spider-man though right that is that yeah, was, yeah. yeah it emphatically is spider-man <laughs> that marvel and dc and i i don't even want to get into that the death of james levine this was definitely another big story of 2021 and it really gave us this opportunity to reconsider how we're going to lionize great you could put that in quotation marks great artists i i was so torn and can you know conflicted by this what what's what's the take of the panel on the death of james levine his actions leading up to that and what happens next i i I mean i think that you know in in our copy for this as we're you know reading along on our notes we have great there in quotation marks um if we're talking about his artistry i think you can remove those quotation marks i don't think there's any way to say he wasn't a great artist a human he was kind of garbage, but in terms of his musical interpretation, the the inspiration, the uh, the musicianship that he put out into the world, it comes with an insane amount of baggage. But there's no way to deny how talented he was. I loved your use of the word lionize here, uh, because, again, I think each of us are coming to this as sort of pupils and students of the art form and in learning this art form he is a name that shows up in textbook after recording after textbook after recording so he became someone that was yeah a big a big part of our education and the flip side of that coin is that he really represents one of the biggest issues facing the industry which is if you have these figureheads at the top of organizations who whatever they say goes no matter how terrible what they're doing behind the scenes is then any kind of changes that people are working really, really hard, as we're going to talk about, on the ground to kind of push forward, there's always that like built-in reactionary guard in that like whatever he says and therefore the donors say go. You know, I just want to say that the whole kind of uprising against James Levine, or the downfall of James Levine, I should say, is his own fault. Mm-hmm. Not going to take that away from him. Um, but 
there is a certain amount of homophobia that's attached to some of the stuff he did. Now, granted, he was doing some weird ass stuff, poop, <laughs> that, um, you know, would have been horrible no matter what his sexuality was. But there is some, I think, uh, I don't know, ickiness that's attached to it being his homosexual proclivities. Granted, there's also some pedophilia mixed up in there, which is I'm not affiliating any of those things together, you know. But I also say that he got caught. That's that's the difference. He got yeah. caught because he was he's now he was uh, doing this in a time when people felt enough courage and had enough support to speak up. But we don't know about all the other lionized great right. you know figureheads that weren't caught and who might be dead now already uh, who did horrible things. So um, yeah. In the end, we we can put James Levine as more example as one of the worst, but only because we know it to be an example. I just I agree with you, and I struggle with how do you put an asterisk on the man's artistic output, right? When Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire were in the home run competition, right, yeah. late '90s, the hated cards against the beloved Cubs, depending on whose side you're on, both those guys were probably on steroids, right? So they're breaking home run records, and in the record books, it's got to have an asterisk on it, right? It's like, yeah, he hit so many home runs, but under these conditions, how do we put the asterisk on James Levine's creative output knowing now what we know? Well, I think it's less of a footnote and more of like, this is his whole legacy. And that is like, that's the legacy that he, I hesitate to use this word, but it's kind of the best one that's coming to mind, which is like deserves. Like he earned the, he, he earned musical greatness and he earned like ethical revulsion through his own yeah. actions. A man, a man of his own making. Yeah. And, and the, uh, the praise that I gave his musicianship, I mean, you know, to boil it all down. I mean, he was a great artist. He sucked as a human, like no question, but yeah, in terms of how we do it, does anybody have groves on speed dial? Because their dictionaries of music are going to need a lot of edits for the next edition and a lot of asterisks. I just feel bad about artists like Don Upshaw and, Kathleen Battle and yeah. any number of, of artists who were really mentored by him and whose early careers are really uh, due to him and whose recordings now we can't really enjoy uh, because they're tainted with his participation. You won't be. You won't be able to listen to a recording of his, I don't think, without, without an image of his proclivities and of his actions in your head. On the other side of the coin at the Met, of course, fire shut up in my bones. Opening the 21 season at the Met has to be one of the big highlights, one of the big moments of the year. The New York Times in their recap of 2021 talked about this as reopening versus reawakening, right? This idea that the Met was actually really kind of waking up finally. Yeah. Um, Take it, Matt. Talk us, talk us through the momentousness of this Taryn Blanchard premiere. Fire shot up on my bones. The first opera by a black composer to be performed at the Met. Not for lack of trying. A lot of the write-ups talked about how William Grant still, you know, approached the Met almost 100 years ago trying to do the same thing. And he was totally dismissed. Um, and I I mentioned that early on because like Terrence Blanchard in his interviews talking about the buildup to this piece was, was talked about the importance of being a turnkey, not a token, and how the it is not that he's the first black man to deserve such an honor. It's not even that such a 
dubious honor is even an honor at all. But it is, uh, it's a sign of, finally, some of those walls are crumbling down. And we have the chance to open opera up to a wider world, to expand the canon, to bring in new audiences, to incorporate new art forms into this kind of mass conglomeration that even is opera. Uh, like, uh, the way that step dance and the and the culture of historically black colleges and universities was like worked into the worked into this opera because it is part of the plot. Like that, that's the kind of stuff that when we want to dismiss by saying you know representation is just the start. Like representation does open doors and windows like this, and eyes. Hopefully, you say it so pretty. But I mean, what what you're saying for people like me who need things to be a little bit more explicit is that music can now grow. You know, we can now say that, you know, this is not just a white Western European art form. This truly is an art form for everybody. And once you are okay with that, it has more possibility. It has more potential, not just to reach new audiences, but to be better. You know, it's like biodiversity, you know? But also let's, uh, to, to boil it down even, even further into, uh, something that's a little bit more blue collar. Well, not even blue collar, brass tacks, uh, a very Ashley Hargrove way of thinking about it. Um, you know, on one hand, what took you so long? Uh, mm-hmm. And on the other hand, uh, with, you know, with a step team and some cardigan sweaters on the Met stage, racism isn't over. Uh, and it sure as hell isn't over in this art form. That's uh, not it, what these articles say. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like when Barack Obama was elected, we were like, everything's okay now. No, um, but it's a great step. And I'm so glad that we have it, but I want... I hope my hope for all of us, this panel and everybody listening, is to be mindful of this is one step. Hooray, it's coming to Lyric uh later this season, which is gonna be awesome, hopefully, provided we're allowed to keep things open. But this is um uh, my hope again, it's sort of the turnkey versus token thing, is I really hope what this does is it influences other companies to be unafraid to program things that should have been there for quite some time. Absolutely. And it's it's early. It's too soon to say. There have certainly been like other um, retrogressions that we can all name if we were to think about it in terms of social movements. Uh, but we are already starting to see second and third steps. Like I do think it's really important to note that this, um, The Fire Shot My Bones, was rescheduled to be the premiere like in response to the protests after the killing of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, that... Th- that kind of moving away from the the vaunted like five year plan in order to respond directly to the concerns that people are expressing, that people are experiencing, that are going on in the world, like that is a positive sign, even more so than any one work. And they've already done it again um, by adding uh, Blanchard's other opera, Champion, onto the schedule for 2022-23 after Fire Shuffle yep. My Bones was like such a huge success. So this may be some positive motion towards making this art form a little bit more nimble, a little bit more dynamic, a little bit less white. Um, because if the Met is starting to go that way, like those dominoes are going to fall. Yeah. I mean, if the iceberg that is the Metropolitan Opera can Precisely. do this quickly, there's absolutely no excuse for any other American company. Right. Right. Exactly. It is an iceberg. When you look at Opera Wire's most read stories of 2021, the absolute majority of them all have to do with the Metropolitan Opera. It is... You cannot overlook just how that one company really dictates the landscape in this country that we live in. I don't think that's right, but I think that's a fact. And, and we will well, like, see in 2022 yeah. if, 
we can start to break that iceberg apart. I mean, part of the hard the the difficulty there is that like not only is so much of the opera that's presented in America that like gets shared around and isn't regional from the Met, but also almost all of the conversation at some point has to refer back to the Met because they're the central thing and that's where all the newspapers and magazines are located, so they all get written about, and that's now what you have to talk about because that's what was written about any opera at all was talking about the Met. And this country is built in such a way that it, it doesn't have to be like that, right? Like, that is the way it is in the UK, where, where the two houses in London really dominate the scene. I would argue that's the way it is in France, where Paris really dominates the scene. But it's not that way in Germany. And my hope is that this country can, again, break that iceberg apart. We'll see if the unions have anything to do with it. That, of course, was, I think, one of the other big stories. The 2021 season wasn't even supposed to happen according to a Yahtzee. Uh, according to unions all over the place. Uh, you know, one of the things that I have been so fascinated by in, you know, our, our constant bringing up of, of unions, I went back and did a quick count, uh, and at least 15 of our shows in the past year have mentioned unions and advocacy and workers' rights. Uh, and it, this isn't a problem that is specific to the world of opera. This is the world of opera and their union fights are kind of a microcosm of what's happening across the world, specifically in this country, but across the world when it comes to workers' rights, especially what we're finding in the midst of the pandemic. You've heard a little bit about these uh, these great resignations and people that are just kind of, you know, in the words of Norma Ray, mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. Uh, and so in this still in the pandemic era, the way that we work is changing. Uh, and so many of the culture of conditions that we were used to just because that's the way it's been they're shifting. Uh, and so it's very interesting to see these unions really reinforcing themselves as collective bargainers and standing up for their membership. And the changes that we're seeing, I mean, they seem to be good ones so far. I don't think we're done yet. Uh, I think I think there might be some stuff brewing for ADMA. I definitely think there's going to be some stuff brewing in other areas of film and television that have some overlaps uh, with the world of opera. The challenge is... I was thinking about this, um, you know, to really care for your workers, no matter what kind of business you run, it's expensive. Uh, and opera is already a very expensive art right. form. So in this era of workers advocacy and giving people better working conditions and, and equal pay and better pay, all of which should happen. But for these already cash-strapped organizations that have been cash-strapped from what is going on a three freaking year long pandemic, what is that going to look like as we raise those working standards for, you know, the smaller places, the B houses, the C houses, the storefronts? What's going to survive when we kind of finish having all of these workers battles? And even more than like the the standards themselves, like the expectations both for like workers that work that employers have for their workers and that workers have for their employers, like those have become so calcified over the last 40 odd years. Like it's going to take a like a lot of noise to continue to shake people out of that stupor. Like we are just at the very beginnings of the stirrings of people waking up about workplace conditions in general. And it's, it's so funny because we hear people when they are, you know, lamenting the pandemic and this, there's this, you know, we're, we're all so tired and we're so ready to get quote back to normal, but that is exactly what we don't want to do in some of these places where the working conditions haven't been so great. So you have people yearning for this sense of normalcy, but also we want to shatter all of that normalcy. So it's just a, an interesting headspace to live in. 2021 in review. 
I don't think we're going to be in the business of making predictions for 2022. We will see what happened. You know, it'll be out of date by next week. <laughs> you know that the OBS is going to be the place that you're going to want to come to for all those stories and all those hot takes. A little bit of sports before we get into the second period of the OBS hockey opera game. John Madden, rest in peace. We, I can't believe that I failed to mention him on the uh, best of episodes the last two weeks. Uh, totally disheveled, slovenly, and just one of the greatest coaches and commentators the sport, I think, has probably ever known. And such a recognizable voice, too. You hear that voice, you know exactly who it is. It, it sort of sounded like he always had like a ham sandwich in the, tucked in the corner of his mouth when he spoke. He may have, George. He may have. <laughs> Uh, hashtag Opera on the Ball, the Fantasy Football League hosted by Opera Philadelphia. The OBS, uh, we finished 10th overall out of 12 teams. Fourth in our division is 6th nice. and 8th. Congratulations, record. you guys. That is not embarrassing at all. <laughs> we did not embarrass ourselves too much, Tobias Wright, really uh, kind of pulled it together. We won our last two games. I, I will say that uh, <laughs> Larry Brownlee did manage to win the entire thing. And he is he a did. Steelers fan, so we are taking it. <laughs> Antonio Brown we're not Ooh. taking him anymore that is literally <laughs> the, the strangest thing I think I've ever seen on a Sunday afternoon I'm speaking of the great resignation Antonio Brown I don't know what happened I'm quit. sorry I'm, who is he what happened so Antonio Brown played for played past tense uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers <laughs> and in the middle of the game yesterday uh, there was some sort of a, a a tussle, an argument, a something an on the sidelines. An altercation. He may have gotten mildly injured in the beginning of the game. And out of nowhere, mid-game, rips off his jersey, throws it into the stands, pulls his gloves off, throws it into the stands, does some sort of like jig, jumping jacks, mild cartwheel combo, and then runs off the field in the middle of the game, effectively quitting the team right then and there. Hmm. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I... On one level, it was fascinating and weirdly liberating to watch, but also like, like Antonio Brown sucks. Like he's a great player, he's a but in terms of being person. <laughs> he is a horrible person. Number one, he was already punished this year and benched because he put together a fake vaccination card. Come All on. the cool he kids are doing it. <laughs> he treats women terribly. He's recorded private conversations with coaches, but it's, it was also really like as, as bizarre and at times funny to watch as it was it was really sad because there's this is a man who clearly is in need of someone to pull him aside and be like you okay but also we all need to think about the role that we've played in making him the way that he is i mean he is fully responsible for all of his actions especially the important ones but he's also lived in a world where he's become a king pretty easy in the king making world that is the nfl so it'll be uh, interesting to see how all of that I wanna, shakes out. I want to tie it to opera really quickly. And I don't yes. have all the details straight. But there was a time when somebody I stand, Roberto Alanya, was bat poop crazy. And <laughs> yeah. I, I don't remember exactly the details, but it was either Faust or Romeo and Juliet or a Verdi opera that has like a high C or high B, like right before the curtain comes down, where Alanya missed it and the audience booed. And he Wasn't came... it Celeste Aida? Maybe that's what it was. He came out in front of the curtain during the intermission or during the pause and just sang the note to show the audience that he had it. And he cracked on it again. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a close parallel, but it is, it is like, you know, an opera star just, just walking off the stage and taking off their wig and being like, you know what? I've had enough of how I'm being treated. 
but with under immense pressure and the way that uh, the way that they treated look antonio brown is is suffering right not since chad ocho cinco or terrell owens have we seen these kinds of antics and i'm not going to give it any more airtime than that over to the listener mailbag got a couple comments to uh questions to share first of all claire writes I work as a scientist and frequently have to break down highly technical subjects to communicate with a non-STEM audience. It's a challenge to effectively communicate scientific and engineering assessments without getting laden down in technical jargon that's incomprehensible to the other party. First of all, Claire, good for you for teaching STEM. Goes on, I'm curious about how your team approaches that balance between technical and layman while you're on the podcast. Is the balance you seem to strike well? Do you generally assume that your listeners are coming in with a certain level of expertise. Ashley, what do you got? Well, the first thing I want to say is, hey, Claire. Hey, friend. Uh, One of the things that I do outside of my uh, time here on OBS, no, I actually do other things, if you can believe it. Uh, My my job (laughs) lives at the intersection of uh, interdisciplinary thought. So at the intersection of law and business and STEM. So what I do with my time when the sun is out is I am taking scientific concepts and communicating them to non-technical audiences. And part of the reason that I really love that type of work is that fascination with the interdisciplinary and the multilingual. And so I really applaud uh, and and I'm thrilled that there's somebody else out there that's having to do this. And that's part of the reason why the degree that I work for exists. Uh, It's at the intersection of law, business, and STEM. At any rate, um, I've always been fascinated with things like interdisciplinary concepts, which is one of the things that drew me to this show, uh, the sparkling personalities of my co-host notwithstanding, was this relationship between sports and opera and how aligned they actually are coming from seemingly totally different worlds. Uh, And one of the things that I really like about this is that we are able to use both of those mediums to some of them are going to be more accessible than others. There's going to be a lot of people out there that understand opera and we can give them we can help them understand sports a little bit better. And then there are people that understand sports and are interested in opera. And we can use the medium of sports to help them understand the way that opera goes. Do we think that our listeners are coming in with a certain level of expertise? Some, but not a lot. Uh, And and that's, you know, honestly, that's part of the reason that I enjoy part of this so much. And and it's also part of where I come in. I I also used to run a company uh, that when we would program shows, we we would do classical music, but we would try to make it as relatable to the audience as possible. And uh, so we would have each each of the people on the programming team would have a specific role. And my role is something that I dubbed the Uncle Frank factor, which means that if my Ah, Uncle Frank, who knows, Uncle Frank, if my Uncle Frank, who knows nothing about classical music, comes to one of our shows, what's he going to get out of it? How are we going to talk to him? How are we going to speak to him? And so I really appreciate the fact that we have this sports tie-in so that we can communicate each of these concepts to these two different communities. There are people out there that love classical music and sports, and I think those are the folks that eventually find us. But I don't think that we assume that all of our folks are coming in with, you know, a, a fundamental knowledge in classical music. Matt, how do you think about threading the needle for our listeners? Yeah, actually, for you, it's Uncle Frank. For me, it's my parents. Whereas, like, I try to picture if we are doing a show, like, if my singer friends and my parents are listening to this at the same time, I ideally want, like, every single segment to have something for both of them. And a lot of times that makes for stronger segments anyway, because you can get really narrow and deep, but you can also, like, make sure that you have a broad foundation that you're building on that is giving context 
drawing examples to like not only sports but like to other art forms to to movies to like i too was drawn to opera because of how many different fields it encompasses you know there's history there's music there's music history there's scenic design there's drama uh that gives you a lot of points of reference to kind of bounce things off of if it if it isn't like if you're getting too wrapped around the axle of the specifics of one thing and so i think that that really helps in in terms of talking about music versus maybe talking about stem but um take i just want to take that i just want to say um thank you for this letter claire uh, it's barely affirming that what we're doing uh, is hitting the target. Mm-hmm. It's totally our goal to demystify this and to make opera as accessible to our audience, to our lay audience, as it is to our friends. And um, yeah, that's what we've been trying to do these past whatever, how long have we been there? 45 years now we've been in there? <laughs> Since um, 1874. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, but it really, we do also want to trust that our audiences, once they find their access point, once they get in the door and they start hearing us talk about these things over and over again, that they will begin to branch out themselves and learn more. And I know that we have people that have done that and just, you know, that's what it happened. That happened for us too. Like we got the, we got the bug when we were younger and we were hooked and we did all the work to figure out what it was all about. And it's actually a very enjoyable process to learn about opera. Maybe to pursue it as a career, not so much, but to learn about it is quite fun. (laughs) It is a great question, Claire, and it actually really helps us, I think, kind of take stock of this new season that's coming up, this new calendar year that we're in, this new block of episodes. You know, this this is episode 301, over 300 episodes of the OBS in the books. I, I don't think there is another show out there that has hit 300. There's shows out there that have been done more years than us. But over six seasons, when the seventh season out, week in, week out, for me, that is the beauty of this show, is every week trying to talk uh, clearly, articulately, without a lot of inside baseball jargon about, well, both sports and opera, quite frankly, and to try and tap into the fanaticism of the people that like both of those things and to show that they have more in common than not. Lillian in Seattle writes, I would love to hear your comments on the O'Coin and Rule modern take of Eurydice. This is Matthew O'Coin, Sarah Rule's uh, piece, Eurydice, directed by Mary Zimmerman at the Metropolitan Opera. Well, Aaron Morley is a friend of the show, and so is Jakub Josef Erlinski, who played the Orpheus double or the Orpheus's other naked body counterpart um and i listened to the broadcast i didn't see the um hd broadcast but i listened to the radio broadcast and i found the performance to be fantastic i thought that the way matthew coin sets the english language makes it very easy for the singers to communicate the text it's not crazy high or crazy low or really fast it's you know there's definitely storytelling happening there I've heard the criticism of it being derivative, but usually when people say things are derivative, derivative, derivative how and derivative of what? Well, you can read the reviews out there, but I think whenever <laughs> people accuse something of being derivative, what they're really saying is that I understood what was happening. And I don't think that's a bad thing. <laughs> Not at all. All we're there, we're here for is clear storytelling. Matt or Ashley, have you uh, intersected with this piece yet? 
I haven't yet. Um, I'm excited to do a little digging into it. I, I love me some Sarah Rule, so I have a feeling that I'm going to be able to sort of like wrap up with it like a blanket and enjoy it. But uh, I'm I'm not there yet, but I'm looking forward yeah. to it. Also, hi, Lillian. <laughs> no, I haven't had a chance either, but I'll listen to, to anything that Aaron Morley sings similarly. So I remember the days when Sarah Rule was just an emerging playwright. This is probably 20 years ago. Uh, when she wrote this avert the the play version of Eurydice, and here we are twenty years later, um, the the piece I've not listened to, I have read some reviews of Matthew O'Coin's latest book, which is about opera, and it's very articulately and simply written. So do want to hype that title. Again, you can write to us, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Super easy. Drop us a line. Let us know what's on your mind. Of course, you get that OBS swag, beer coaster, and lapel pin. Also, again, on Stitcher and Spotify, you just click follow to subscribe to the podcast, or you just hit that plus sign on Apple Podcasts. More platforms coming your way on how to listen to the OBS. What's coming right now? It's the two-minute drill. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The Prototype Festival has postponed its season to 2023 due to the current surge in COVID cases and logistical challenges. The performances were to take place live and in person later this month. Producer Beth Morrison said, We are heartbroken to not be able to share these extraordinary works with our audiences right now, but we pledge to return even stronger in 2023 when we can once again safely gather and joyfully celebrate art together. While you count down the days until next January, we at OBS encourage you to peruse the opera news piece in our show notes, which celebrates the festival's successes over the last decade. The Catholic Church and the Italian city of Ferrara are making their peace with Antonio Vivaldi <laughs> 300 years after the city's archbishop canceled one of his operas and sent Vivaldi into debt for the final years of his life. It's almost a vindication, a belated tribute that the city of Ferrara is offering Vivaldi, said conductor Federico Sardelli. In a Gothamist article called Lincoln Center is Reckoning with its Racist History, author Jennifer Vanasco recounts how the developers of Lincoln Center used racist eminent domain laws to build a mecca for companies that were bastions of white culture, like the Metropolitan Opera, Juilliard, and the New York Philharmonic. These new neighbors displaced the lively music halls and clubs, which had previously been social centers for communities of Black, Puerto Rican, and Caribbean immigrant residents just a few blocks north. Find a link to the full article on the show notes of this episode. Emma Jett writes on the NPR classical music blog Deceptive Cadence that while the COVID shutdown stalled careers for some opera singers, it also opened doors. She goes on to name drop friends of the show, Zach Finkelstein, Christine Gerke, Will Liverman, and others as examples of how their creativity grew within the confines of the pandemic. You could also just appear on the OBS if you want similar improvements to your artistic process. If you've been wondering where one of the original bear hunks has gone, Australia's Limelight magazine for music, art, and culture offers an interview with Mariusz Kwiecin. The Polish baritone talks about why an injury forced him to retire from the stage, promoting other Polish singers, and showcasing Polish composers as the new artistic director of the Wroclaw Opera. You'll find a link to the interview in our show notes. Superwoman alert! Over the course of the nine-day run of the Chicago Opera Theater production of Mark Adamo's Becoming Santa Claus, friend of the show Lydia Yankovskaya only missed one of the three performances to give birth 
Eli Chen stepped in for the performance on Friday, December 17th, and the new mother of two took the podium again on Sunday the 19th. The Metropolitan Opera has announced it will require all eligible adult employees and audience members to get COVID booster shots to enter the Opera House, making its safety measures stricter than those even on Broadway. The Met is the first major performing arts organization in New York City to announce a booster shot mandate. The new rule takes effect January 17th. Belgium has officially reopened theaters following a decision by the Council of State. God, that sounds important. Because of the government's official announcement, theaters and opera houses are allowed to reopen for audiences of up to 200 people at a time. Spectators have to wear masks, present a vax card, a negative test, or a recent recovery. It smells like award season is coming. Baritone Luca Salci has been awarded the Piero Capuccilli Award. Soprano Sayoha Hernandez has received Spain's gold medal for her work in Las Bellas Artes. And bass and friend of the show Solomon Howard has received the Washington Performing Arts Ambassador of the Arts Award. In trade news, Des Moines Metro Opera announced Alan Periello as Director of Artistic Administration. He returns to Demo, having previously worked on the company's music staff and was most recently Head of Music at Minnesota Opera. Guys, big news. Big news. Lean in. Are you listening? Ready. Are you listening? A female conductor for the first time ever will take the helm at an Italian Opera House. This month, friend of the OBS two-minute drill, Oksana Linov, will make history as she begins a three-year appointment as music director of the Teatro Comunale di Bologna. Her first opera production will be André Chagnier. We here at OBS could tell Italy to keep up and that it's no longer so groundbreaking for a lady to be on the podium, but congrats to Bologna nonetheless. It's a good thing that Andrea Chagnier is a very emotional opera for a woman to conduct. Justina Lee and Adam Nielsen have been named to roles within Juilliard's Institute for Vocal Arts. Lee will be Associate Artistic Director of the Bachelor of Music program, and Nielsen has been named Associate Artistic Director of the Master of Music and Graduate Diploma program. Opera Philadelphia has announced Darrell Akon as Vice President of People, Operations, and Inclusion. Dr. Akon is a Fulbright Scholar, the co-founder of the Black Opera Alliance, and will continue to serve as New York City's Heartbeat Opera's Artistic Director. Los Angeles Opera has selected Lina Gonzalez Granados as its next resident conductor. The Colombian conductor arrives in La La Land after fellowships in Seattle and Philly. Landmark! Not because a Latina hasn't been qualified, but because it's taken this long to give one such a post. We forgot to mention that Opera America called that appointment a landmark appointment. We don't want to do this, but here is a roundup of pandemic red cards from just the past four days on January 3rd we're recording this. Philharmonica de la Scala has canceled its European tour. Florence's Maggio Musicale has postponed its Beethoven concerts with Zubin Mehta. Teatro Real Madrid completely reshuffled, then canceled the January 2nd performance of La Boheme. Florian Bosch's recital at Staatsoper Berlin has been canceled. Vienna Staatsoper has canceled Tosca and all remaining performances of Die Fledermaus, starring friend of the show Rachel Willis-Sorison. Oper Frankfurt has canceled all performances through January 3rd, and Bayerische Staatsoper has canceled remaining performances of The Magic Flute. 
Exit stage right, English tenor John Mitchinson passed away in December at age 89. Among his notable roles were Peter Grimes, Tristan, Siegmund, Idomeneo, and the title role in Wagner's Rienzi, which was featured in a 1976 BBC broadcast, one of the only complete performances of the work. Spanish-Cuban soprano Maria Remola, who was known as the Cuban Nightingale, died last month at the age of 91. She was the founder of the National Lyric Theatre of Cuba, with an opera and zarzuela career that lasted 50 years. She was also a soloist with the National Symphony Orchestra and a collaborator with Cuban ballet, film, and television. Polish tender Kazimierz Puczelak has passed away also at age 91. He was a leading interpreter of oratorio and opera with signature roles including Belmonta in Abduction from the Seraglio, the Duke in Rigoletto, Alfredo in La Traviata. He served as a longtime dean of voice at the Frederick Chopin University of Music in Warsaw. Bulgarian director Svetozar Donev has died at 88. He served twice as artistic director of the State Musical Theater in Sofia and directed over 200 productions. And on this day, January 3rd, in 1738, it was the first performance of Handel's opera Faramondo at the King's Theatre in London. In 1806, it was the birth of German soprano Henriette Zontag, who created the title role in Weber's Uriante. It was the first performance of Donizetti's Don Pasquale in Paris on this day in 1843. 1892 saw the birth of English mezzo-soprano Gladys Parr, who created Miss Baggett in Little Sweep, Mrs. Noah in Noah's Flood, and Miss Pike in Albert Herring, all three of those being by Benjamin Britten. In 1909, it was the birth of Danish pianist and musical humorist Victor Borga. French conductor Pierre Devaux was born on this Pierre Devaux was born on this day in 1917, and American mezzo-soprano Nell Rankin was born in Montgomery, Alabama, one for you, Weston, in 1926. 1932 is the birth of Scottish mezzo-soprano and singing coach Joanna Peters, who sang in the premiere of Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream. 1972 was the birth of American composer Kevin Putz. Happy birthday to Kevin! In 1985, soprano Leontine Price made her final performance with the Metropolitan Opera in New York as, what else, Aida. And happy birthday to soprano and friend of the show, Janai Broger, born on this day on in some year in the last quarter of the 20th century. And that is your two-minute drill. I wonder what you are going to sing for us tonight. Something not too long. I mean, a, uh, not that I, I, I don't enjoy music or singing, but... Uh, what have you decided, Mary? Yes, for tonight I'd like to sing the Caro Nome from Rigoletto. Oh, God. <laughs> One of the all-time great skits, I think maybe the first sketch that introduced me to Victor Borga, uh, him <laughs> accompanying the soprano named Marilyn Mulvey in Caro Nome. Um, when I started, when I first saw that, I was turning pages for this competition that happened in Chicago called the Bel Canto Competition. I don't know if you've heard of it, Matt or Ashley. Oh, 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 oh yes. yes. Oh, no, yes. We're deeply aware. And there you were, turning pages. <laughs> yes. And I always thought of whenever anybody sang Kadonome, I always thought of this sketch. <laughs> I remember the skit, the skit he does where he gets blasted off the piano bench and then pulls out his seatbelt from inside the lid and buckles himself in. You still got it, Vic. Oh, man. Oh. Victor Burger, hey, look. You want to make sure that if you're um, listening to the podcast, you, you hit the follow button on Stitcher and Spotify, or even just push that beautiful little plus sign on Apple Podcasts. What a bummer for the Prototype Festival. The 10th anniversary 
And just days before it goes live, Beth Morrison has to cancel the whole kit and caboodle. You know, I'm not mad. I'm not mad because I want Prototype to invite us. And we weren't going to go this year, but maybe... We've got a whole year to get there. Yes. Well, they're paying all the artists, the full whack, everybody that's involved. They, They made that part of that statement, which is, well commendable but only because it's the right thing to do and obviously Beth's going to do the right thing it just it gives you pause for thought it ties in with the uh, COVID cancellations that are now sweeping across Europe it, it's basically like March of 2020 all over again fortunately some key differences but uh, it does have a, a little ring of deja vu about it for sure we the know more is... now and have less spoons don't say March 2020 ever again <laughs> I mean, the question is, why aren't the cancellations happening in the U.S. yet? What what Just makes you us wait, more baby. Com- What's making us more confident? I mean, you know, late December, early January is always sort of like a dark time for most opera houses, but those seasons are going to start ramping up again any minute now. Um, here in Chicago, Missy Mazzoli's Proving Up, directed by a friend of the show James Dara, is supposed to open later this month there at, it is, the James Good- Dara. at the Goodman Theater. Um, and the Goodman Theater canceled its run of A Christmas Carol, which is like their big moneymaker for December. So we'll see. I, I, I have no answer, Oliver. I, for the few moments in my life, I'm speechless as to why more American opera companies are not just saying, look, we don't think it's safe. Like, I, I get the finances. Okay, I get that. I get the promises to subscribers, donors, ticket holders, all yeah. that. But like, Think it through. Look at the past. Figure it out. Oksana, Lena, Lydia, ladies who, who what? Here's to the ladies <laughs> who conduct. Everybody <laughs> applaud because it's about damn time. Uh, yeah, no, I, it's it's great to see all of these uh, these things that are still weirdly note and newsworthy. Um, I was thinking about this, you know, not too long ago, we wouldn't have been able to report on things like this and have these types of stories just because there weren't that many women on the podium. Right. And certainly not women who also were trying to balance partnership and building a family and making that family, in some cases, leaving the podium for half a day to go make the rest <laughs> of the family and then come back. So I'm just very excited that it's becoming more common and that this the fact that it's becoming more common is happening so quickly. I can just imagine Lydia Yankowska being like, uh, yeah, it's a job. I need to go back to work. <laughs> and just from her post, it seems like that's more or less exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah. But as we're talking about like all of the changes that are happening like that, that comes that really drew my attention to one of the quotes in that Imagette piece where she talked, I mean, she talked to so many people, so many great people who we've talked about on the show all year. Um, Like Will Liverman and Karen Slack in particular had some fantastic quotes that stood out to me about like recognizing what is going into this changes in their career. Like it's in terms of the, the social atmosphere and much like we, how we were talking in fire shut of my bones, like the, the demands for social equity and progress have opened doors that 
people were knocking on for years and just no one was listening. Uh, And toward the end of that article, Karen Slack says, I think some people in this industry are very, very ready to go back to the way things used to be. It will be important. It will be for those of us who understand the importance of not going back to keep pushing. We will need support. And that, that has still stuck with me. I think that that is, it's true in so many different aspects of this industry, of this career and being an artist and being an artistic supporter. Like we, it is our job to, give that support and to keep pushing forward. You're quoting from the article uh, there, of course, we'll put the link to that in the show notes. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Bo Schembechler, one of the most famous Michigan Wolverine football coaches out there, his big phrase, those who stay will be champions. And I think that is what Karen is trying to get to here is like, we need to, we need to stick around. We need to continue to do this work. We cannot revert even the idea of the next normal could be seen as a way of those those backward steps or that stasis, and that's what we want to avoid. Oliver, the reconciliation between Vivaldi and Fadada, I got, I was doing my best not to laugh while you well, were doing that bit. The thing is that that is actually a story that's been widely circulated. It was on the AP, it was on the Washington Post, even NBC News carried it. It's a bit click, clickbaity. Uh, the headline is uh, a Vivaldi opera gets its premiere 300 years late, making it sound like maybe they found, you know, a Vivaldi score. I was but, surprised they didn't find a way to work cancel culture into it. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure certain <laughs> ones did. But I mean, the the nitty gritty of the story is that, um, you know, there was a time when Vivaldi was was canceled and the, you know, the Catholic Church decided they weren't going to put on his show. And it gets into a lot of, you know, the politics of the time. And it gets into the idea that Vivaldi is an opera composer for a lot of people who never heard the name Vivaldi. If they d- did hear it, they, they know him of it, him as the composer of the Four Seasons. Right. So there's so much information right. you have to be able to take in and to really understand this whole story. <laughs> that is some inside baseball. <laughs> okay, okay, Claire, just so you know. Well, anyway, the reason why Vivaldi was canceled at the time is because he was sleeping with one of his singers, and maybe they uh, weren't married. That's that's a rumor that has not been fully proven true. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> when has the Catholic Church ever gotten it wrong, Ashley? <laughs> so this piece that was supposed to premiere in the city of Ferrara was canceled by the cardinal, throwing Vivaldi into bankruptcy, and you know he was near the end of his life, and he had respiratory problems or something like that. So they're trying to make it sound really sad, like, oh, yeah, this ruined his life. But uh. <laughs> Oliver, you were just cracking me up on this show. Oliver puts together the, the On This Day seg as well. And Handel's opera Faramondo. I, you know, the only reason I know it, and God knows I'm not the Baroque specialist on this panel for sure. Uh, we, I did just direct that at the university where I teach. We, we did a, a semester on Faramondo. And... Yeah, eight performances back in 1738. Our production was, uh, I think, the second time ever in the U.S. for that production. And and boy, is there a reason why. It, it makes absolutely no sense. We don't have time to get into the merits or demerits of Faramondo at this late hour. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Uh, 2022 here on the OBS Wherever you're listening, wherever you are, thanks for hanging out with us each week. 
every week. Good call, bad call. We're going to wrap the show up, starting off with Oliver Camacho. So I'm going to try to keep it opera, but I have to say I'm so excited for season two of All Creatures Great and Small. I finally caught up on the first season during the break. And I love this show so much. There's no, there's no conflict in this show at all. It's just, <laughs> it's just watching beautiful English pastoral landscapes and yep. this beautiful man shove his arm up a cow's butt. <laughs> Happens in every episode. <laughs> or uterus. Yes. Um, but I did want to bring it to opera and do my own fantasy casting of All Creatures Great and Small. So I propose, yes, and Davies as Dr. James Harriet, uh, Jesse Blumberg. <laughs> Uh, as Dr. Siegfried Farnan, Mireille Asselin as Helen, Kate Lindsay as Mrs. Hall, and uh, breakout star Duke Kim as Tristan Farnan. All of these <laughs> friends of the show, you can find them in the OBS archives. Matt Cummings. As we were prepping the show tonight, the news came across the wires that Elizabeth Holmes has been convicted of four of the counts that she was being tried on. And I just want to know... When are we getting an Elizabeth Holmes opera for a soprano who has to sing in the basement all evening long? <laughs> I'm working on the libretto as we freaking speak. You would be perfect casting, Ashley. I really hope that manifests for you. I already Ash- have a turtleneck. Lee Hardgrave. <laughs> I am so delighted to be back with my gentleman on the panel, but I am still in deep, deep love and respect and mourning for the loss of my patron saint, our Lord and Savior, Betty White. Uh, We never deserved someone so brilliant and so wonderful and so beloved. And uh, I am, I encourage all of you to go out and find a new nugget of Betty White information. There's a ton of it out there. Uh, She hosted her own show in the 50s where she had to improv for five and a half hours a day, six days a week. Her 2010 uh, episode of Saturday Night Live that was crowdsourced to demand that she host. Uh, And she said something that was wonderful. She said in her monologue for SNL, Jay-Z is here. If I had a dime for every time I said that, I would have one dime. Uh, So she just, and she was just so lovely. We never deserved her. I encourage you to go celebrate Betty White. And on her 100th birthday, donate to an animal charity. That is on January 17th. You know, I want you to comment on this really quickly, Ashley. We have like just like 30 seconds. That episode of Saturday Night Live is one of the best episodes ever of the show. But it also highlights a glaring fault with the show at that in that year the only principal female cast member was Kristen Wiig that's correct yeah and they had to bring back Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Anna Gasteyer uh, and Maya Rudolph to make that show work and they were all phenomenal but what was going on with SNL that year it was a weird turnover time. Uh, you'll the the main cast members. You're right. There was one female. They had a lot of uh, the secondaries, the what they call the features. They're kind of like the 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 apprentices. Uh, and a lot of those. So they had Jenny Slate. They had Abby Elliott. They had uh, Nassim Pedrod. Nassim, yeah. None of whom lasted particularly yeah. long on that yeah. show. You know, and especially Abby Elliott was interesting, considering that she's a second generation. Because her dad, Chris Elliott, who also didn't last very long, was on oh, the show. Oh, she's so much funnier than him too. She's so much funnier than him. But yeah, that was a, it was a good era in the show, but it was also a weird time in terms of equity. I mean, they had the best men ever. I mean, they had Bill Hader and... um, Jason Sudeikis. Jason Sudeikis. The guy that plays MacGruber, Will Forte. Oh my God. Will Forte, yeah. Yeah. Just before the Cecily Strong and your Kate McKinnon and your 80 Brian. Oh, and Seth Meyers was so cute back then. Uh... 
And uh, Claire, that's what's known as completely unrelated to <laughs> opera and sports as well. Oliver, you and I on the same page. All creatures great and small. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait for the second season of that. Can also, I'm going to give it a good call already. West Side Story, Gustavo Dudamel conducting the New York Philharmonic and the L.A. Philharmonic. I'm going to watch and I think I might just close my eyes. I don't Speaking know. of Lincoln Center, West Side That's Story. For this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera, our announcer, Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Twitter, Instagram, at Opera Box Score. You know how to help us deepen that bench of listeners liking, sharing, social media posts. Email us the hot takes, operaboxscore, gmail.com. Follow on Stitcher and Spotify to subscribe to the podcast. Hit the plus sign on Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings, Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you check out all the fresh meat at the gym. We're back with an all-new show next week when the star of Sarasota Opera's upcoming Tosca, soprano Anne Toomey, goes inside the huddle with us. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, more panettone. Join us. I have so much panettone, and I'm living by myself. I don't know what to do with it. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to eat it, obviously, but it's a lot of calories. So. All right. Raise your hand if you would like panettone. <laughs> Not good for my core. <laughs>